All right, if you would, go ahead and grab your Bible, or if you didn't bring one, grab one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you, and open it with me to the third chapter in the book of Esther as we continue this sermon series that we are calling The Unseen Sovereign. Now, if you're a guest with us this morning and you don't know where Esther is, I just encourage you to kind of go toward the middle of your Bible. It's right before Job, Psalms, and Proverbs. So it's in the Old Testament. And then the chapter number or the larger numbers, that's what you're going to be looking for, the third chapter. Now, the reason we are calling this sermon series The Unseen Sovereign is that Esther is a very unique book in the Bible and that, that the name of God is never mentioned throughout the entire book. As we've talked about and seen the last couple of weeks, there are no major displays of God's power. There's no dramatic miracles. We don't even hear God speak to his people once throughout the whole book. And yet, here at First SF, we have become convinced that 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is true, where it says this, that every word of Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for our teaching, for our reproof for our correction and for our training in righteousness so that we as a church may be complete and equipped for every good work. What that means is we need to be trained by this book. And one of the reasons that I think we need this so much is that oftentimes our days on this earth look a lot like Esther's life. Most of the time in life, while we may know that God has a plan that he is working, it doesn't always seem like our tragedies and our hard days and our our sins and our mistakes and our good days and our successes. We don't see how all those can fit into his big plan. We don't always feel the presence of God. We don't always clearly hear his voice or see these dramatic displays of his power. And so this book is here to remind us this morning that there is a God who is both good and is sovereign, that is taking all of the events of this world, including the, the small pieces of your life, and he is working them both to his own glorious plan, but also it's a plan for the good of his people. God never forsakes his people. That is the message that comes loud and clear in the book of Esther. But this morning, you have to remember, Esther did not have the, the luxury of knowing her full story. She doesn't know what some of us who have already read through the book of Esther find out. She's sitting there in the in this midst of the tension of, is God ever going to show up? This morning, what I want you to do is, I want you to try to put yourself in Esther's place. I want you to think about the circumstances surrounding Esther's life, and I want you to ask yourself, how would you respond in those circumstances? Now, the first thing that we've learned about Esther is that she is an exile a Jew living in exile, which means this. It means that she was living in a pagan city far from from the promised land, far from Jerusalem, among a people who despised people like her. This was not how it was meant to be for God's people. If you go back all the way into the book of Deuteronomy, you, you find that as soon as God rescued his people out of the land of their oppression, the land of Egypt, it says that he entered into a covenant with them. What that means is that he became their God, they became his people, and he, he promised them that he would take them to a land and there he would make them prosper, that he would bless them and protect them from every foe. And yet the terms of that covenant he made very clear through his law. He said, if you will simply obey me, if you will worship me alone, then I will bless you, I will give you abundance in this land I have promised. 
But the flip side of that was what? That if they disobeyed him, if they, among these other nations, began to worship the gods of these other nations, that he would not protect them. And so as you read through the rest of the Old Testament, it's the story of of Israel's unfaithfulness. They were not able to be obedient to God. They were not able to worship him alone. They worshiped many different gods. They worshiped idols. They worshiped the gods of the foreign lands that they walked through in the wilderness and all of these different things. And so finally, God does exactly what he said he would do. He raises up a foreign nation, a foreign leader, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And in 586 B.C., they come in and they destroy Jerusalem. They tear down the temple. And they carry away the people of God. This was a dramatic thing for God's people that they would no longer be in this covenant relationship in their promised land, but instead they'd be scattered among the nations under foreign rulers who were not their God. That is the environment that Esther finds herself in. A young teenager in this environment where she is questioning, is this covenant with God, does it even still exist? Now that we've broken the covenant, now that we're in exile, is God going to act on behalf of his people? These were the questions surrounding many in Esther's day. If that were not enough, we read in chapters 1 and 2 that Esther was an orphan. She had lost both of her parents, and so she had been taken in by her uh, her, her, uh, uncle, a man named Mordecai. Mordecai had cared for her until one day the Persian government showed up. And they took Esther out of the house of Mordecai and they brought her to the kingdom there in Susa, where King Xerxes was the most powerful man on the planet. They were having their own form of of the show Bachelor, except the bad thing is in Persia, the women that were part of this Bachelor series didn't have any option whether to be there or not. You look at this story and it's it's a really sad story how King Xerxes uh, get, gets rid of his original wife, Vashti, because she's not compliant with his command. And so he sends his servants to find the most beautiful women of the kingdom, all there, brought to the kingdom to have one nun who is most king. And after having his time with all of these different women, he would pick one who is most pleasing to him. It's a horrible, perverted situation that Esther finds herself in. Well, Esther complies. She goes along with this process. She hides her identity. She doesn't tell anybody that she's part of the people of God and instead just kind of goes along with the plan. She has her night with the king, and of course, he chooses her. He finds her to be the most beautiful, the most compliant, and he makes Esther the queen of Persia. That's where we ended last week in chapter 2. Now, as you move into chapter 3, you wonder, maybe this is a time where things are going to begin to look up for Esther and God's people. She's now the queen. Maybe that's going to be a good thing for God's people. Well, unfortunately, if it looks like God was missing from all of that, it looks like he's even missing more in chapter 3. And so let's read it together. It's the word of God that we're going to read. Chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Says these words, after these things, King Ahasuerus, and that again, that's King Xerxes, for those of you that don't know that name. And let me just say this while I'm, while I'm on this name. Some of you may get uh, very nervous when you're reading the Bible in public. You get to names like this. Just let me tell you this. Just say it confidently. No one will know that you got it wrong, okay? I have no idea if I'm saying that name right. King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. 
But Mordecai, again, that's Esther's uncle, did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Now, when you read this story, we're going to stop there for a moment. You would be right to think, what is happening here? I mean, what in the world is going on? There are a number of questions that should come up as you read this text. Number one, why does Mordecai, what does Mordecai have against Haman? To, to, to bow down to a Pachamishan in that culture was not an act of worship. When you read this, it's not like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who refused to bow down to the golden idol of Nebuchadnezzar. That's not what's happening here. In this culture, to, to bow down was, was a simple act of respect, much like you find in Asian cultures today. It wasn't an act of worship. So you wonder, why would he refuse to simply bow down to Haman when everybody around him was willing to bow down? It seems like a, a weird place for him to say, you know what, I'm going to stand my ground here. He just allowed his niece to be taken and to the Persian government and did nothing. But now he says, this is where I stand. It's very odd. But then you get to Haman, and you look at Haman and you wonder, why would this man who, who is hurt, his pride was hurt by one individual, Mordecai, why would he turn that and say, you know what? I think I'm going to commit genocide of an entire people group. None of these things seem to make sense. But when you're reading the Bible... It's very important that you pay attention in these stories to how a person is introduced. When a person is introduced, they will often tell you something that sometimes we may not see on the the first time through. And so when you look at Haman, how is he introduced in that text? He's Haman the what? The Agagite. Now that may mean nothing to you, but here's the thing. If you were Jewish and you were in this culture and you heard that word, the Agagite, you would have automatically heard enemy. The reason for that is this. Agag was the king of the people known as the Amalekites who had the very bold distinction of being the very first people group to try to destroy, to try to annihilate the people of Israel. You read about this all the way back in Exodus 17. Right after the people have been uh, through the Red Sea, they're the people of God, they're going out. Right after that happens in chapter 17, it says the Amalekites rose up and they tried to destroy the people of God. They tried to get them off the face of the planet. And so when you read this, it's important that you see that Haman, when it says he's an Agagite, you would realize if you're reading this, that this is just another episode in this this long-standing war between the people of God and those who would seek, seek to extinguish them from the face of the earth. God, in chapter 17 of Exodus, said, I will be at enmity with the Amalekites from generation to generation. This was an ongoing battle, and yet here we see another episode of this battle raising its head. The difference in this text, though, is now the people of God don't know if God's on their side anymore. Remember, they're in exile. They've broken the covenant. So now they're questioning, is he still going to act on our behalf? It looks like the enemies of God have the upper hand. 
And that's what chapter verses 8 through 11 are about. Please read it with me. It says, Then Haman said to a king Ahasuerus. Again, Haman couldn't do this without the king's uh, authority. So it says this, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of the kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. He's talking about the scriptures. And they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring in his hand and he gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. This is a very scary moment for God's people. You see, Haman is a businessman. There's a reason he had been elevated to this position of authority. And what does he do here? He tells Xerxes exactly what Xerxes will need to hear for Haman to get his way. He says, there is a people group. He doesn't even mention who they are. He says, there's a people group that don't live by your laws. They're, they're like Queen Vashti who does not comply with your commands. It does not benefit you to keep them around, to tolerate them. We should get rid of these people. If that were not enough, he ups the ante and he says, here's what I'll do. If, if you give me this command, I will give 10,000 talents of silver into your treasury. Now, you have to remember, if you were here last week, you know that, that this time period, Xerxes had just gone out and tried to defeat the Greeks, and he had been defeated. He hadn't been able to do it, and so he came back. The morale was low. The economy was struggling. 10,000 talents of silver was a lot of money. And so what's Xerxes doing? He's clearly looking for his own profit. If you extinguish this people, you can take all their possessions. We can put it in the treasury. This can be good for everybody. And so he gives Haman the authority to go and do what he's been asked to do. Now, we're going to stop here because I want to make two observations this morning about our text. And the first one we see in this first part of the story, and it's a, something you're going to see throughout history if you go all the way back, and it's this. Opposition to God and his people is nothing new. If you're sitting here today and you, you see opposition toward God, you see opposition toward the people of God, and you wonder what is going on here, you need to understand this is nothing new. And yet, I also don't want you to think that it started with Haman or it started with Agag and the Amalekites. No, none of this was the beginning point. It started all the way back in Genesis 3 as Satan was there in the Garden of Eden convincing Adam and Eve, that God could not be trusted. Convincing them that they would be a better king of their lives than the God who created them. From the very beginning, there has been one who has opposed God and the people of God. And what's been the result? Well, of course, Adam and Eve believed the lie and they rebel against God. And now we have a very sinful, broken world. We're all impacted by the remnants of that decision of Adam and Eve. Behind every opposition, you need to understand this, behind every opposition is not a person or a people group. Behind every opposition is the one who has been opposition toward God from the beginning, and that is Satan himself. And for that reason, there has always been opposition toward God and his people. And the problem for us today is that we don't just see this kind of opposition toward God among other people. 
If we're very honest this morning, even this last week, think about your week. Has there not also been this opposition toward God in your own heart? So many times we read stories like this and we, we think, well, clearly Haman and, and Xerxes, those are the bad guys. Those are the people that are, that, are, that are anti-God, that are opposing the things of God. But I wonder this morning, have you ever, like Haman, had anger in your heart towards someone who did not give you your due? Have you ever overreacted because your pride was in some way hurt? Have you ever lived for your own glory or for your name to be known and praised? Apart from Christ, are we any different than Haman? Or take Xerxes. What did Xerxes do? Xerxes simply looked out for his own good. He looked for what profited him. He didn't care about what it meant for the other people around him. He knew that his edict would cause things, but he says, you know what? As long as it's best for me and to my own profit, I'm going to move forward. Again, apart from Christ, are we any different? A people who look out for our own profit, regardless of what God has said? The answer is no. Behind all human self-glorification, behind all human pride, behind all human self-centeredness is this satanic work of opposition toward God that seeks to destroy our very souls. When you read the scriptures, you see this. You see it with sin in the garden. You see it here in Susa with Haman and Xerxes. You see it with King Herod when he tried to kill baby Jesus. You see it with Pontius Pilate and the religious leaders who nailed Jesus to the cross. You see it in the Roman emperors who, who brought devastating persecution on the earliest Christians. And you see it today wherever you see sin and wherever you see those who seek to extinguish the work of God. For this reason, Peter one of Jesus' first disciples, gives him a very important command. He says this to each one of us. He says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. He says, we as God's people, we can't just kind of sleep through life as if we are not in the midst of a battle. He says, you need to understand that the one who opposes God is at work all around you, and he's at work in your heart, and you have to resist him at every point. We have to also remember that our battle is not with people. You may look around, and you may see people and nations and organizations that are trying to extinguish the people of God, that are trying to, to push back against the people of God, and you might say, there are enemies. No. Against the rulers, against, he says in Ephesians 6, 2, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This battle is ongoing. And so, friends, you need to understand this battle is always going to be there. The question is, how will you respond? How do you respond when you see the enemy at work as, as if it looks like he's going to win? Maybe it's in your own heart. Or maybe if it's in the culture around you, what do you do? How do you respond? Well, it brings us to our second observation from this text, and that is this. There are defining moments in life that require we make a choice. There are defining moments in our life where we have to decide, are we going to identify with God through obedience, or are we going to identify with this world that we can so easily get accustomed to, but that the Bible says in its opposition toward God. 
There are defining moments that cause this. That's what we read about in the text. Let me summarize just a bit of the story of what happens as we move into chapter 4. When this edict goes out, it says that, that Xerxes and Haman, they spread this edict throughout all the nation. They all find out what's going to happen. And, and it says that chaos ensues. The, the people all around are wondering, why has this edict been given? The people of God, of course, are filled with fear. They don't know what they're going to do about this. What are, what's going to happen? Is God going to do anything? And then the text focuses on one individual, Mordecai. We've talked about Mordecai. He's Esther's uncle. But it says when he finds out the news that has been given, it says that he tears his clothes. He puts on sackcloth and ashes, which was a sign of mourning in those days. And it says that he goes out and he cries out at the king's court. He's mourning. He's protesting. And he stays there day and night. Well, eventually, word of what's happening with Mordecai gets back to Esther, the queen. And apparently she knows nothing about this edict that's been given. So she sends for Mordecai and she asks, what's happened that you're in the courts embarrassing yourself? Your clothes are ripped off. You're wearing sackcloth. What is going on? And he tells her about this edict that has been given and how it's going to impact God's people. This is a defining moment for God's people. It's a defining moment for Mordecai. It's a defining moment for Esther. What are they going to do in the midst of this trial where they have to identify either with God and all the risks that came with that or to identify with the world that they've become accustomed to? Well, let's read what Esther says in verse 10 after she learns what happened with the edict. In chapter 4 now. It says, Then Esther spoke to Hothak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king these 30 days. So here's what's happening. Mordecai sends for Esther and he says, you have to do something. You're the queen of Persia. You have to do something. And what does she say? In essence, what Esther says is, Mordecai, do you realize what this will cost me? Do you realize what you're really asking? I, I'm going to give up everything. Do you not know that you can't just go barging in to the king's quarters? If you go in, it means one thing. It means you're likely going to die. Unless he holds out his golden scepter. And here's what she says. I haven't been in the king's chamber for 30 days. We all know the king's not sleeping alone. I have fallen out of favor with the king. If I go in, I'm going to be just like Vashti. I'm going to be kicked out. And I may even lose my own life. I'm going to lose everything. This is a defining moment. Because in this moment, she has the choice to make. Will I identify with God and, 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 and speak up for my people? Or will I remain silent and stay with this world that I've become so accustomed to? The stakes here are extremely high. But I want you to listen to how Mordecai responds to Esther in verse 13. He says this. This is really the highlight of the entire text. It says, Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. 
So here is the picture. You've got Esther weighing her allegiances. Which way am I going to go? And Mordecai comes in and she gives her a, he gives her a very important reminder. He tells her two important statements. The first is this. He says, if you keep silent, no doubt deliverance will rise from somewhere else. You want to know what that is? It's the closest allusion to God that we get in the entire text. Why? Because all of a sudden Mordecai realizes and he exhibits this concept that we know throughout the Bible called faith. Here's what Esther, he's saying to Esther. He's reminding her, you may keep silent, but God is going to protect his people. God does not forsake his people. You can remain silent, but I'm telling you, he's going to do it through somebody. And if you remain silent, here's the other problem. You're going to be judged. Yes, you may lose your life if you go into the king's courts, but I promise you it's going to be better than what happens if you keep silent and you face the coming judgment of God. He reminds her what we need to oftentimes be reminded of, that our God will never leave or forsake us. That obedience to him, even when it's risky, even when it's costly, identifying with him is much better than the opposite. This sounds a lot like Jesus as he encourages his disciples to count the cost of following him. I want you to hear what Jesus says to them and and to us. He says this, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you to whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. In verse 8, he goes on to say, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. I believe this text is so important because I believe for each one of you in this room, you face many defining moments in your life. There are many opportunities where you come to a situation and you have to make a choice. Am I going to identify myself with Christ and be obedient to what he's called me to do? Or am I going to remain silent? Am I going to just not act? Am I going to remain in this place of of just kind of staying where, where, where I always have accustomed to the world around me? You see, for the very first time in this text, you see a little bit of tension in between in, in Esther's life. Up until this point, she's been silent. There's no evidence that she's had anything to do with God or his people. There's no evidence of her praying, no evidence of the scriptures, no evidence of her worshiping God. She's been totally passive. But now this defining moment is an opportunity. The question is, what will she choose? And the question for each one of you in this room is the same. What will you choose? There are times where identifying with Christ is risky. There are many times where identifying and being obedient to Christ is going to cost you something. There are times where it's going to cost you your resources. There are times where it's going to cost you friendships. There are times where it's going to cost you um, your pride, where it's going to cost you hurt relationships. There are times where being obedient is going to cost. There is a risk involved. The question is, Do we look at that risk and say, well, it's worth it? Or do we look at it and say, you know what, I'd rather align with those in opposition to God? He gives this warning to Esther. 
But then he says something very important, and this is what I want us to, to leave with this morning. He says this, And who knows whether you, have come, who you, whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Love that statement. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He's saying this, Esther, yes, this whole situation is a mess. We as God's people aren't supposed to be in Persia. You're not supposed to be married to this pagan king. None of this is, all of this is filled with sin and mistakes and tragedy, all of this story. And yet, what if in the midst of all of these things, God is is at work to make you part of his plan to save his people? What if you're the one that God has raised up for such a time as this to be the light that pushes back the darkness? that aligns yourself with God and so pushes back against those in opposition to him and his people? What if you are the one that I've raised up for such a time as this? This is so encouraging to me because it tells me a number of things. Number one, it tells me that, that all of our mistakes that we make, the many different decisions we make, the, even the sin that we've made, none of those disqualifies from the grace of God. This is an incredible passage that reveals God's grace and mercy. You see, up until this point, Esther had compromised her faith in probably every way possible to fit in with the culture of Persia. But God was not done with Esther. Through his grace, he used all of these circumstances that Esther was facing, and all of them were for a greater plan that included both his glory and her good. And so the question from Esther was, would she trust that God could accomplish what she could not He was not through with Esther. And friends, what that means is that he's not through with you. I don't know where you come into this room, how many mistakes. Some of you, I think, you look at obedience to God today, you say, well, he couldn't use me because of my past. There's no way that he could use me in a great way to to serve his kingdom if he only knew all these things that I've done. I'm in these circumstances right now that are horrible. Maybe something's been done to you. And you say, well, I'm disqualified. I I don't wanna do anything. There's nothing, I'm too small. The story of Esther tells us that if you are still alive today, if you are still breathing, there is still time for you to identify with Christ and be obedient today. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day to move forward out of your past into being part of the plan that God has for your life. That's why Jesus says the following about his, those that follow him. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Could it be this morning that God has raised each one of you wherever you're at, whatever your giftings are, whatever your personality, for such a time as this to be his light in that area? to be his light in those circumstances, to be his light in that workplace. The other thing I love about this story is that Esther is not the first person you probably think of when it comes to people that God's going to use. Esther's not a pastor. She's not a missionary. She's a political figure. But here's the thing. If you look at this section of the scriptures, you're going to find three different books that tell the story. Three different people who are all serving the purposes of God all in the same time period. One of those books is called Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was a businessman. If he were living today, he'd have an MBA. He was, he was good at planning. He was an urban developer. And it tells the story of how God raises him up to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple, 
to start this process of, of doing all of these things, and yet he's a businessman accomplishing the will of God. A different book that you have is a guy named Ezra. And if you know anything about Ezra, you know that Ezra couldn't do any of the things that Nehemiah knew how to do. He wasn't a business leader. He wasn't a good planner. He didn't have any of that. But there's one thing that Ezra knew. He knew the scriptures. And so what does God do? God raises him up to lead the people back spiritually to himself. And then you have Esther, literally thousands of miles away from Jerusalem at the same time. And yet where does he place her in the political sphere? And it is her that brings political salvation to the entire nation. I want to encourage you this morning. You do not have to be a pastor for such a time as this. You don't have to be a missionary for such a time as this. You are to be God's light wherever he has placed you. The body of Christ has been given different giftings and given different capacities. He's put some in powerful positions, some in powerless positions. He's taken some of you who are teenagers, and he's taken some of you who are senior adults. He's taken some of you who are orphans, some of you with lots of money, some of you with little money, and he says, I'm going to place my light all around the world to accomplish my great plan for my glory and for your good. And so the question this morning is, it, could it be that God has raised you up right where you're at in the midst of your circumstances, whether you're a business leader or whether you're an educator, whether you're in medicine, or whether you're in politics, or whether you're in the service sector of this city, or whether you're a pastor, or whether you're a missionary for such a time as this, to be his light, to identify with Christ and be obedient to him, even when it may cost you in those environments. We all are at a defining moment this morning. I can remember one of the most defining moments of my life was the first time I heard the gospel message that I could not earn salvation, but that Jesus had provided salvation by going to the cross in my place, taking the punishment for my sin that I deserved, and that there was nothing I could do to earn that work. He did it for me because he loved me. He had grace for me. But what was required was that I step out in faith. I take a risk. I give my life to him, and I trust in the work that he accomplished on the cross. I would imagine there are some of you in this room that are not a follower of Jesus this morning. And that defining moment, that first defining moment is when you say, I'm going to risk everything to follow Jesus. I'm going to trust in his work on the cross that it can bring forgiveness of my sin, that I can live with him in this life and for all eternity. I can promise you this, whatever risk you take in that, whatever you give up, whatever it costs you, it is nothing as costly as saying no to Christ this morning. May you turn to him, repent of your sin, and place your trust in him. For those of you in this room that do know Christ, I would simply ask you this. Is there any point in your life, is there any area of your life where you know identifying with Christ is going to cost you, and so you've stopped being obedient? You've said, I will go this far, but not that far. It's too big of a risk. Mordecai is here to encourage you this morning. God is faithful. He will not forsake you but you do have to identify with him. You've got to be obedient. This morning, God will raise somebody else up to inherit the blessing of your obedience if you disobey. But today, I believe God wants us to all be a people that stand up to identify with Christ, to be obedient for such a time as this. Would you please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for every piece of your word. 
And Lord, as we sit with this text, kind of left in that tension, we don't know what Esther's going to do, whether she's going to identify because of the risk or if she's going to keep silent. Lord, in the midst of that tension, I believe that there are many others in this room that have that same tension in their life today. They come into this room and you've called them to step out in faith and to be obedient in some area of their life, to identify with you and to be different than the world. And yet, as they look at the cost, they're like, I don't know, God. I pray that they would see this morning that as you call them into obedience, you are with them. That you will never leave them, nor will you ever forsake them. And that obedience to you will bring their greatest joy, no matter what it looks like in this life. Lord, we confess that we have a limited perspective of what you're doing around us. And so I pray that you would give us faith to trust you even when we don't see big acts of miracles in this day. Even if our, our sin doesn't automatically uh, no longer be a struggle. Even if the people we're praying for don't automatically get saved. Even if the struggles in our life don't automatically and help us to simply identify who chose with you and be obedient. For those in this room that don't know you, I pray that today would be the day, that their defining moment where they say, you know what, I'm no longer going to live for myself I'm going to turn from living for myself and I'm going, to, I'm going to ask Jesus to be the king of my life. I'm going to trust that, that his work on the cross was enough to bring about my forgiveness and I'm going to put my life in his hands. I pray that there would be individuals this morning that as they look at the cost of that, they would see that you are worth it and they'd turn to you in faith.